Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. Obesity and diabetes are two of the commonest conditions now prevalent in society. My guest on the podcast today spends his time researching and developing innovations that will help make a difference to patients with those conditions. My guest today is Professor Rob Andrews. You're very, very welcome to the show, Rob Andrews. I'm delighted to be speaking with you today. And particularly given the focus on diabetes, diabetes, as we'll agree, I think, is the number one chronic illness in developed countries today. Why diabetes? Why did you choose to go into such a challenging field? So I originally decided to go into diabetes because uh, while at university, one of my friends developed type 1 diabetes and obviously seeing the experience of him at the time, so it was many, many years ago, it was a very difficult disease for him to manage and had a lot of impact on his life. But obviously, it was obvious that they were things that we could probably do better. So at the time, there were very large needles that were being used, and there wasn't a way of measuring blood glucose. You just had to dipstick your urine and things. So that kind of caught my attention as a as a medical student. And then when I went into training, I was lucky enough to to as as one of my house jobs, which is the first job that you start in the UK, I was put on an, an endocrine ward working with a, a very famous diabetologist. And that was it. I was kind of captured. And, and that was why I ended up being a diabetologist. It often happens like that to medics, doesn't it? That you end up working with somebody who really inspires your career and then it takes off. So from that perspective well first of all how did your friend do uh, how has he been since uh, you left med school uh, friend's been been fine i mean had some of the problems with that you have with diabetes so it, uh, we're, i'm at the age of 50 now so he's at the age of 50 so he's had problems with his eyesight that he's had to have lasers to the to the back of the eyes and on a couple of occasions he's had infections in his feet that he's had to go into hospital and and stay in hospital for them to be um, healed up but generally he's done pretty well with his control well, that's fantastic. Diabetes type 1 doesn't manifest in the same way that type 2 diabetes, which often is related to lifestyle and lifestyle risk. That's another area of interest for you. Where do you think we're going with this? Because from the perspective, I'm a general practitioner, from my perspective, it's really difficult to make the kind of changes that we're expected to make in order to improve outcomes for patients. I'm talking here particularly in terms of lifestyle. What does it look like from your side? So I think there's no doubt that the the major problem in type 2 diabetes it, you know, has been the way our lifestyle has changed over the last century. And it's changed in a lot of ways. I think you've, you're right, it's changed in, in diet. Um, so since I've been growing up, snacks have been introduced. So when I was a, a kid, there was no such thing as snacks. You would just have your main meals. And that was a very good push by the... Uh, by the food industry that they really pushed snacks and said it was very healthy and that's become a kind of what our society does the way people eat has changed so people used to just eat at the table and things now you can see when you're on the train when you're transporting people are eating all the time so it's become a, a different way we eat and then we've we've had lots of things that have made our lives easier but actually have stopped us exercising so there's there's ways you can transport without using energy even apart from cars, so we've got scooters that people are now taking to avoid cycling, they, uh, avoid driving. They can take a scooter rather than cycling. And also, people used to wash by hands. People used to hang out the drying. People used to do all that. We have washing machines. We have dryers. 
But I think the other thing we sometimes also forget is that the biggest change has been our sleep patterns. And that has an influence on things. So we know that during the 1900s, just at the start of the 19th, of the 20th century, that people were sleeping about 10 to 11 hours a day, and that that's now been reduced to about six hours a day. What that means is you're up more often to eat. Uh, you're doing things that distract you, so television and things like that, which means that you tend to pick up food and, and don't register it. But also sleep's really important in in the body, picking up how much you've done in the day, how much energy you've burnt and getting the settings right. So, so I think there are three components. We always talk about two components, but I think there's a third component, which is sleep. Yes, you're right. I recognize all of those patterns. And the one that I'm really fascinated by is this whole area of snacking, because you're right, we, we're constantly eating and it's part of the culture almost. So if you watch people at 10 o'clock in the morning when they've just arrived, work maybe an hour or so ago, they're off down to get their cup of coffee. And often accompanying that cup of coffee is a muffin or a biscuit or whatever it happens to be. Then again at two o'clock, then when they're watching television, they're, they're snacking again. There is a whole industry that's set up around triggering that behavior, whether that's you know advertising, whether it's cultural, whether it's part of the way that our work is organized, particularly those of us who work in offices. How do we as doctors address that issue given that we are fighting a losing battle? We're, we're competing with the, the fast food industry and with the advertising industry who are constantly triggering these behaviors. So I think one of the first thing we, we need to do is, as a group, we need to be honest. So I don't know what it's like in Australia, but in the UK, the NHS was set up to manage illness. And we've done incredibly well at managing illness. And what, we're, what we do is we still strive to get illnesses better, even though the margins are very small. So you can have heart trials that, that you need to treat 100,000 people to prevent one person getting a, a heart attack. And what we need to do is realize that the health service has done its job. It's made people healthier who have illness. What we need to do is switch the health service to prevention. And I think we've been really poor at picking that up. And, and certainly in the UK, there's been real resistance to that. So general practitioners and some of our doctors feel that telling people about what they should do with their lifestyle and how they should improve their health and how they should prevent getting illness isn't their job. That's public health. And what we need to do is flip that on the coin. And we need to start getting the, the healthcare workers who really have an impact on patients' health. So there's a very nice study in Germany where a, a German practice just put bicycle helmets inside their practice. They didn't say that they were cycling. They didn't say anything else. Everyone, the patients assumed that all the, the GPs and, and the healthcare workers were cycling and the activity went up. We are really impactful healthcare workers on influencing people as to, as to what they do. So I think that's the first change we've got to make. I think the second change we've got to make is start to treat people who are overweight with courtesy and properly. And, it, it, you know, we talk a lot about fact that we need to make sure that across ethnicity we're fair and things. In the UK and in other countries I've been to, we are not fair to people who are overweight. And their expectations from the service are that they will get slandered, slandered about their weight. They will be told that all their health problems are due to their weight rather than us supporting them and helping them change. And I think what we have to remember is that they have a genetic problem. We, we're starting to see lots of genes that cause these people to have problems. So I think those are the first two things we need to do. And then the other thing we need to do is we need to work with industry to make changes. And also we need to make changes within the environments that people work. 
so some of that work we've been involved with. So when they built a new, uh, we have Rolls Royce in Bristol. When I used to work in Bristol, we worked with Rolls Royce and we made sure that the canteens only offered certain foods, that the dispensers of food only offered healthy food. And then we insisted that the car park was was a mile away from where they were. And what that meant that every day, they each every worker walks at least two miles. And that has incredibly improved the health. There was a bit of wrangling about that when it first started, but now everybody, it doesn't seem as a problem. They get a park, car parking space, but they get their, their form of exercise on the way to work. Yeah, I love those examples, Rob, because they resonate. As I can see how that would make a difference. But I want to go back to something you said earlier, which is that we are in the business of managing illness. You're right, and we do it very well. But of course, it's driven by the dollar, isn't it? Or the pound, whatever currency you want to use, because that trial of 100,000 patients that leads to one prevention, that's going to lead to the development of usually a drug, which is going to be very profitable. It's very much about the profits of an industry that is set up to do that. There's no money in prevention, is there really, other than saving money for the NHS, etc. And that's not seen in the same way, because it's not seen as part of the commerce of medicine. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we're probably talking about two things there. We're trying, talking about what fuels research. So there's no doubt that, uh, when, and we have that problem in the UK. So every five years, we do surveys with patients and say, what research would you want? And then we look back and see what's happened. And although they've said what they want, which is a lot about care, support, education, things like that, what we find is that most of the money is spent on, on finding drugs. Because I, I, but I think, but I think that's something that we do as doctors is that we think an easy solution to something is to have a drug or to write a prescription and we need to change those patterns and things. But the healthcare service can decide whether it spends on a, on a heart drug or whether it spends on prevention. And it sometimes doesn't do that well enough. So we know that for preventing diabetes, you need to treat 20 people for one year. Uh, to prevent one person getting diabetes. So there's the cost effectiveness of, of diabetes is uh, prevention of diabetes is one of the best things. We have a similar problem with weight loss surgeries that sometimes people get to the stage that they, there's nothing you can do in order to turn the ship round because they've had the problems with their eating. Surgery is the most effective thing that NICE in the UK has ever reviewed. Yet in the UK, we, we're one of the smallest, we, we do the smallest number of operations in Europe although we have the biggest problem with weight problems. And quite a lot of that is the opinion of the people who work in the industry that spent uh, the NHS and, and the public health is that we shouldn't be spending money on these people who are overweight. It's their fault. And that disseminates into the, into, they're worried that if they do that, they won't get the public vote. And, and we need to turn that round. And there are some countries that have done that very well. So Sweden have, have spent a lot of time doing bariatric surgery to get the people who were never given help, but then have spent a lot of time getting their their cities and everything and, and their eating and physical activity better. And British Columbia are doing the similar things. So British Columbia had a standout in Canada is that their obesity rate is much, much less than other parts of Canada. And they've done that dual thing. They've taken care of the people who never got taken care of. And then they've hugely invested in walking programs, in having healthy food and, and things. And I've seen a, a massive reduction in, in weight problems. So it can be done. Yes, it can. You're right. We see it in areas where there has been massive investment in the kind of infrastructure that you're talking about. But of course, that isn't medicine. It wouldn't be investment in, for example, general practice. This is very much about public health. It's about architecture. It's about 
account planning and all the rest of it, which is perfectly reasonable. And I'm wondering whether in the coming years, we're going to see much more of a focus on that as opposed to the kind of medicine that certainly I'm delivering in general practice. For me, from my perspective as a GP, multimorbidity is a very big issue. So I see patients who've got complex conditions, diabetes, thyroid disease, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, cancer. The time available to me is increasingly limited. The opportunity to offer them advice in the way that we've described, other than maybe putting a bicycle helmet up saying, look, this is something I promote, isn't the same. Because you hear increasingly that people think patients should be educated. And that's really quite patronizing in a sense, because you're not achieving the real results in the way that you've described with real change. Yeah, I think in GP practices and hospital practices, the the key things we've learned are everyone needs to to sing the same song. So the difficulty that people who have weight and problems or have diabetes is that when they ask about dietary advice, everybody says something different. And when a new diet comes out, they can ask five healthcare workers and get five different responses. So in, in our studies and our clinic, we have a policy that we sit down if anything new comes out and we agree what we're all going to say. It might not be, it can be difficult for some people not to, to say what it is, but it's really important that everybody says the same thing and then they get it from the, the, the same place as what people are saying about it. I think the other message that I've learned from life is that there isn't a diet that's that's better than others. And if there was, then the diet is true with others. What you need to do is you need to quickly cycle through and try different things until you find what works with the patient. So we kind of have a policy of they have a couple of weeks to see whether something's working. If it doesn't work, you quickly move on to something else. And you don't see it as a failure. You just say, so I'm sorry, that diet wasn't wasn't for you. It didn't work for you. Let's move on and find the one that does work for you. So you don't get this kind of cycle of trying something for couple of months and then them feeling as if they failed. And then the other important thing, which is the only way our, we've managed to do it in studies, is that we've, we focus on what we call the edging, which is really what you were talking about at the start. So we've realized very early that if you're a, and I'm sorry to be simplistic, but I'm a very simplistic person, but if you're a, a fish and chips man, it doesn't matter how much time I spend, I get a dietitian to spend with you, you're still a fish and chips man. What you put at breakfast, lunch, and dinner is really difficult to change. But the things that actually cost you are the edging. And what we mean by the edging is the, the, the drinks that you have between the meals, what milk you put in things, and the snacks that you have. So almost all of our focus in our trials when we've managed to lose weight has been, we're not going to focus on what you put on your plate. We're going to focus on changing the edging. And we know that if you change, if, if a man changes his diet by 200 calories a day, that over six months, he'll lose eight kilograms. And, and for example, we, we have kind of, very simple things that we work through. And what we have found as well in our trials is that men are different for females. And I know I shouldn't say that in a politically correct <laughs> society, but but that's very helpful for doctors is that men will change high calorie snacks if you talk to them about it and they'll reduce their alcohol. And, and you can change the milk that they put into and some of the calorie drinks. Females won't change alcohol as much if they're trying to lose weight. So there's generally an, a very clear under reason, reason why they're having that. You have to explore that. They will change a bit of what makes up their plate. So they, they'll change the vegetables and things like that, or the rice and things. And they will change snacks, but very unlikely to change the drink, the milk and the things like that. So it's a question of just targeting slightly different for males and females. And that's not what we do in, in public things. We tend to just target everybody. 
And that will vary from people of different ethnic backgrounds. So it's exploring what they're willing to change and offering the water is. So when our men come up, we say these are the three most common things that people change that cause them to have a weight loss. Which one would you like to work on? And then we have a toolkit that helps them work on that. And females, we offer three different ones. So I think it's a question of just thinking about the edging and things that they can change is the easiest way. And you can do that with a very subtle touch approach. And again, for exercise, you can there is a, a one-minute consultation, there's a two-minute consultation or a five-minute consultation. We've worked with something called Moving Medicines. So there's a, a website that helps general practitioners or healthcare workers have those one-minute, two-minute and five-minute conversations. And we know that they do increase activity. I was really intrigued by your example from Rolls-Royce because that sets the scene in a different way. When you think about it, the majority of time while we're awake, we spend at work. And here was a company that put a car park a mile away, changed the canteen and achieved really quite interesting results. Do you think that that's something that we should be exploring more is the role of employers? Because in the end, if you get diabetes and you're taken out of the workforce early, that costs the company. If you retire early, it costs the, com- the company money. Do you think there's some merit in that? Yeah, huge merit. I, I think we realized that many, many years ago when we, there's, there's a thing called acti- activity monitors, which are things that you can put on patients and you know exactly how much activity what they, they do. And we compared people who were struggling with their weight to people who weren't struggling with their weight. And they worked at a, a company called Hewitt, pa- Hewitt Packard, which is a, a, a computer company. And what we found is that during the week, there was no difference in activity levels between the people who were overweight or struggling with their weight and the people who weren't, apart from what they did on the way to work or on, on the way home. But at the weekend, there was huge difference. So what that showed was that when people have their own volition, the people who keep a normal weight tend to be more active and the people who, who don't tend to be less active. But actually, five days of the week, it's your employer that controls how much activity you do. So if we're going to make a difference, we have to get the employers on board as, as to how they can make their staff more, more physically active. And again, that's the same for a food environment. So about 70% of people at Hewitt Packard decided to eat in the canteen rather than bring food in. And some of them, because of the long hours they work, would have two of their three meals there. So again, you can see that across the week, actually, the, the 60% of what they're eating is decided by what's in the canteen not by what they, they choose to, to, to get. So yeah, it can have huge influence. What are you working on at the moment? What's your pet project? My pet project at the moment is type 1 diabetes. Uh, so I used to be a swimmer myself. So I used to swim at quite a high level. So I have links into, the, into Sport England. And um, one of the co- swimming coaches contacted me and said that someone had been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and told that they had to give up their swimming career. And that's, I, I, I've seen that around the world. So there has been some very famous swimmers that that's happened to. So uh, Jerry Hall, who was a very famous American swimmer, he had type 1 diabetes and was told he had to give up his career, but, but went back and swum. So we did, started doing some work to, to understand whether this was really, really happening. So we did a survey of healthcare workers in hospitals and also patients. So we surveyed a thousand newly diagnosed type 1 patients and found that they were in fact being told that they couldn't exercise when they were diagnosed. So that led us to kind of think we need to improve education. So we got a grant off our local uh, National Institute and have developed a program that helps support patients with type 1 to exercise. As part of that program, there's a curriculum that 
teaches the doctors how to deliver it. So we get both things. We, we upskill the doctors in their local area. They then deliver the program. So we, we get both things with it. So at the moment, we're just trying to roll that out across Wales. Wales have bought the program and then are looking to roll it across, across England. But COVID kind of hit us because it's a face-to-face course. So we're spending a lot of time putting that as an online course. And as, as we started to put it online, then other countries that speak different languages have come to us. So I've just won a visiting professorship to Denmark to, to convert the program to a, a Danish a program that would be both online and face-to-face. And uh, people from Kuwait are also talking to us. So that's using most of, most of my time at the moment, which is really nice to see that something that just gives patients empowerment is actually being rolled out and, and being used by, by different people. And is it being rolled out through healthcare or is it being rolled out in another way? It's being rolled out through healthcare. So uh, Wales have commissioned it. So all, all of their uh, specialists in type 1 diabetes will get trained in it and then deliver it. We occasionally put on conferences where we train a group of people. So we've we've just done a digital one for free. We we did seventy two patients who could come through the course just signing on themselves rather than have to go go by the doctors. And then we also run a a yearly national course where we offer training for doctors to learn more about how to manage people with type one diabetes. So we try and disseminate it as much as we can. And with Chris Bright, who I think you talked to before. We're at the moment trying to set up a buddy system. So Chris has a, a buddy system for people who want to play football or futsal, but we don't have a buddy system for lots of other sports. So we've got together a group of people from all different forms of sport who would be willing when someone get, has type 1 diabetes or is struggling with exercise, that if you do cycling, you can talk to someone who's got type 1 diabetes who cycle. Because to be honest, the, the people who find the solutions are the patients. I just give them a toolbox. And again, that comes back to how do you change people is, is buddy systems work much better, both in type 2 and type 1 diabetes. So if you've got type 1 diabetes and someone who's got type 1 diabetes says, this is the way I got, how I control my diabetes, you're much more likely to listen to them than somebody who doesn't have diabetes who's a doctor, a way of patients giving back to other patients. Where do you think we're going to be in the next five years, given all of these changes? Do you think there'll be a dramatic change in the outcomes for patients? Or do you think that we're going to be moving this kind of emphasis on diet and exercise away out of medicine and into public health and into, as I said, the employers. The way we're thinking of it at the moment in the UK is that, and this is, I think much what you're talking about is that we need to stop move thinking about people as isolated conditions and we need to manage people as chronic. And there's no doubt that weight is at the center of a lot of problems. But weight's quite complex. So sometimes what causes weight problems is chaotic lives, stressful lives, money problems, things like that. So at the moment, locally, and I think other people are thinking about the same thing, is having what we call a health hub. So a place where, where people would go and there would be links into your workplace, there would be links into the specialist, but the hub would be the main place that dealt with things. And what there would be is everything could be offered to do with health, including support onto how to deal with money problems how to deal with housing problems how to deal with the, you know your your child with attention deficit disorder or autism which a lot of our our patients have and also support if they've had life events so about a quarter of our women who come to our weight management clinic have unfortunately had life events either being abused or other major life events and that needs to be taken care of first before you can do anything else 
So more to try and be holistic, it's all in one place, uh, but there's a coordinator that is relating that to what's happening at work so that if you're going to make changes, changes can be made at work and everywhere else rather than trying to have isolated sessions with GPs, isolated sessions with, with me in a hospital, and then isolated sessions at the, you know, the trying to get a job and then social services because it, 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 and really the communication isn't very good amongst all of those. It sounds like we're reinventing general practice, certainly general practice that I trained in in the 1980s. And you're right. I think we need another approach, uh, a different approach because people have complicated lives, as you've described. They have all manner of other things happening. And to give them the time, respectfully give them the time and the expertise, we need a whole other approach. The globesity pandemic, if that's what we call it now, has taught us that, that we, we are not going to be able to do it without a complete change, root and branch change in the way we approach people with chronic illness and particularly the predisposing factors to chronic illness of which obesity is number one. Rob Andrews, it's been an absolute joy speaking with you today. You clearly have thought about this a great deal, a lot of wisdom and insight in what you've explored with me today. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time. That's all right. Thank you very much for inviting me. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.